A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, starting with verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who has brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn, your fierce, turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syneche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clements and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Jesus again in reply spoke to the chief priests and elders of the people in parables, saying, 
The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. A second time, he sent other servants saying, tell those invited, behold, I have prepared my banquet. My calves and fattened cattle are killed and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Some ignored the invitation and went away, one to his farm, another to his business. The rest laid hold of his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his troops, destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy to come. Go out therefore into the main roads and invite to the feast whomever you find. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, bad and good alike, and the hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment. The king said to him, my friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? But he was reduced to silence. Then the king said to his attendants, bind his hands and feet and cast him into the darkness outside where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Many are invited, but few are chosen. The Gospel of the Lord. So this past week, I was in Hutchinson, Kansas for the CEEC convocation. Really thankful for it. Um, It was a really great time. One thing that really says more about me than it does about The place where I was is that, you guys know, I've lived most of my life in cities, not large cities, but cities, Tulsa, Nashville, and uh, and I'm used to, you know, not seeing stars at night, and uh, there being kind of just a low rumbling in the the background as you go to sleep, you know, hearing sirens or hearing, you know, different things like that, and uh, I got an Airbnb that I didn't realize was quite as remote as it was, (laughs) Um, and it was in Amish country in Kansas. And so when I drove up late at night and got in and saw a horse and buggy cross me in the other direction, I was a little surprised. Oh, this is a little further out than than I expected to be. Um, Also, I ended up with a migraine while I was there. And uh, and so looked for, uh, I'll just run down to the pharmacy, which surely is about a mile down the road. No, it's about 25 miles in either direction down the road. And so it's kind of of an adjustment. Um, I felt like as a city boy, again, this is more about me, this is not whining, but I felt like I was in the wilderness. Um, Didn't know where I was going. (laughs) But this week we're going to talk about uh, celebration. And we're going to talk about how we celebrate and what we're to celebrate. And I think... Celebration is important when we are in challenging times or what we might say desert seasons in our life, in between seasons in our life. How do we celebrate what God has done and yet acknowledge our circumstances that are surrounding us? Of course, I was kidding about my journey with the Airbnb, but many of us in, um, are, are in situations or have found our world in situations that are truly desert seasons, wilderness seasons, where we don't hear God clearly. We don't hear God responding. Our world right now, many of us are carrying in with us today uh, the acknowledgement that our world is full of war and pain and oppression. But if we're honest, it's not just the large-scale things that often bother us. It's the everyday things. It's when we can't make the budget work at the end of the month, when our health will not cooperate, when we've been betrayed by a friend, 
These are desert seasons. What do we do in these moments of desert in our lives? It is precisely in those places where we are often most tempted to trust in other things. So the people of God have struggled in these moments from the very, very beginning. In times of desert, where do we turn? What do we look to? Our Old Testament reading continues the story of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. God's people stand between the miracle of the Red Sea and then the promise of the land that they're headed to. They're in the middle of nowhere. And God has now called Moses to go back up on the mountain. And there on the mountain, he gives them really detailed guidelines for how to build this tabernacle or this mobile home for God's presence. God then tells Moses, as he's giving them the instructions, and it goes on for six chapters, God giving Moses the instructions of how to build this tabernacle. But then he tells Moses something's happening down at the camp. While he's hearing instructions about what God wants them to build, the people have already started building something. They're building something on their own. Now, there's something really ironic here. God has just laid out to Moses these detailed plans for his dwelling place. This would be, this involves process, artistry, everything in place, everything symbolic, everything meaningful. But instead, the people, by their own initiative, take all of their gold and build an idol. It's a rush job. They do it quickly. The reading tells us that the people are growing impatient because Moses is gone for a long time. Well, of course, that's because of the intricate detail that God is giving him about the tabernacle. So the people are in the desert. They can't see the hand of God. They're struggling to remember who they are. They're struggling to remember whose they are and the promise that God has given them. So they panic. They freak out. To us today, like the idea that somebody would create a God out of gold sounds just kind of ridiculous to many of us. We go, what? you're going to create a God out of your gold earrings? What? Why would you trade the God who delivered you from Egypt and slavery for a calf out of gold? I mean, we read this and we go, we're enlightened people. Primitive people used to do that kind of thing, but we're enlightened today. We don't do that kind of thing. But Israel, this is one of the things we misunderstand, I think, especially in Sunday school sometimes. Israel didn't believe they were creating a new God out of nothing. No, they're desperate to see the one true God, and they don't see him anywhere. So they turn to their priest, and they say, make us something. They turn their gold and the stuff they have, and they say, God's in this. Here, God's here. In fact, it says Aaron even proclaims a festival to the Lord. That word, the Lord, is Yahweh. It's the one true God, the one who delivered us out of Egypt. So the thinking is not, God's failed us, we need to find a new God. No, that's rarely ever our thinking. No, the belief is God has been silent. Let's find a way to have him appear in our midst. Maybe if we do something creative enough or we kind of build something or whatever and we do it kind of quickly, then maybe God is in our pretty gold and our creativity. I think this begs a question for us, like where do we turn in times of need? Where do we turn in the times, the inevitable times of desert when we don't feel God? I think one place we are particularly vulnerable today to look for a movement of God is in our political tribes. Christians, this is really tricky because Christians try to hold two things at the same time. Politics are not unimportant. Christians are called to protect the vulnerable, to look out for the marginalized, and that often means engaging in conversations in the public square. 
It's necessary. It's important to speak truth to power, and the Christian faith has a long history of doing that. Christians are not apolitical or anti-political. But at the same time, we realize neither our political tribe nor our nation will ever be the hope of the world. So politics are always going to be messy and imperfect. But it's not just politics. We so easily turn to money, influence, performance, status. These are things that are right in front of us, and so they feel easy to control, or at least within our grasp to control. But the consistent calling of the Christian is to remind ourselves and remind each other and remind the world that our hope is in God, that he's not given up on us even when we don't see him clearly. In response to their idolatry, God is incensed. God says to Moses, go down because, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. Just a few chapters earlier, God has called them my people who I brought out of Egypt. I think about a parent, (laughs) we all just went there, didn't we, Um, who is really angry with their child's behavior, and they say to the other parent, will you go get your child? (laughs) God is deeply hurt. God says to Moses, in fact, he's going to wipe the people out and start over again with Moses himself. Now, I think it's strange for us to think about God being hurt. That's difficult sometimes for us. But I think it shows the depths of God's relationship with his people. The more intimate a relationship, the deeper the hurt and the more severe the consequences when it's broken. So God's impulse to wipe out his people, I think actually shows us something about his great love for his people, even though that sounds really counterintuitive. He's deeply hurt and he feels all that goes along with that hurt. He's been betrayed by his great love. Moses contends with God. His argument is this. These are your people. And remember, you are faithful. Moses reminds God of Israel's story, how God delivered them and set them free. It's not that God needs to be reminded of what he's done. But by reminding God of his character and reputation and nature, Moses is invited by God into his grief into God's grief over what has happened. Now, this raises all kinds of questions. There's lots of theological questions about, wait, God said he was going to do what now? Okay, so did God change his mind? Okay, did Moses convince God? All these things that are way beyond a lot of what we can understand. But I think it does tell us something about God's great love and the fact that God invites us into his feeling. God invites us into his his longing and into his relationship. It tells us something about prayer, that prayer is not just wishing upon a star, throwing something up to the sky and seeing if it sticks. No, God invites us to somehow participate in his work through prayer. We wrestle with God, we contend with God, we lament and we cry out. And ultimately, and this is central to the story, God chooses faithfulness to his own promises, even when his people are unfaithful. In our Philippians reading, Paul addresses what seems to be a specific issue with two women in the church. Their names are Iodia and Syntyche. And Paul pleads with them, be of the same mind in the Lord. So I think it's fascinating that God gives the church instructions, Paul gives the church instructions in the midst of a real issue. So this is a time of conflict and a time of pain, and Paul addresses that real conflict. 
And he begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If you've been around church for very long, you've probably heard this verse quoted quite a bit. Humans are really wired to celebrate something. We're wired to worship something. And we will always find something to worship. We'll always find something to celebrate. So in the Old Testament reading, God's people created a festival to the false god because they're longing to celebrate something. They're longing to worship. Now, in Paul's day, fear was a normal part of life. It kind of ran through the background. You know, we experience some of this today, but, but in the ancient world especially, there was this feeling of being closer to death at all times, even no matter what your age was. And that fear was attempted to be numbed throughout history by, um, by some of the gods. The idea was if we continually celebrate these pagan deities, then that will help us kind of numb that fear that we experience. But the fear is always there. It's always still there running in the background. Why? Because these pagan gods couldn't really be trusted. They're celebrating something that's hollow and that doesn't bring true peace. Paul says, when we celebrate or rejoice in the one true God, we find true hope and true peace in the midst of our fear because we know God hears our prayers. This is really important. When Paul says rejoice, he is not commanding them, be happy, right? Sometimes we hear rejoice, and, and it's the way at least I was taught in church was, buck up, right? <laughs> Lift your head up. Be happier than you are. You know, stop being so gloomy. Rejoice. That's not what Paul means by rejoice. In Paul's world, rejoice means publicly celebrate. That's what it means. Do a public celebration, it was an action, and it had little or nothing to do with feelings. Notice that the Bible never commands us to feel things. Feelings are important, and the Bible gives room for the expression of feelings and affirming feelings, but we're never commanded to feel something. Why? Because feelings change. They're often fleeting. Feelings are like thermometers. They tell us what's going on inside of us. They tell part of the story, an important part of the story, and I, what I don't want you guys to hear from me today is saying that feelings are not important, okay? Feelings, I'm from a family of therapists, all right? Feelings are critical. They're very important. They tell part of the story, but not the whole story. So there are times when Christians are called to publicly celebrate when we have all kinds of feelings going on, even competing feelings. Historically, the church observed rhythms of celebration, so every Sunday when we gather together, this is a celebration. This is a feast that we participate in. But also there's these intentional feasts throughout the church calendar that are these rhythms of celebration that come around every year. Christians throw parties. That's what we do. We celebrate. We feast. We celebrate what God has done. We're a people of celebration, of remembering God's faithfulness. And we can do this no matter what circumstances we face. When we rejoice, when we publicly celebrate, we are not ignoring the pain of the world. Far from it. We are acknowledging a new and different world has broken through in Jesus Christ. And this changes everything. It gives us hope for a day when there will be true justice and love and healing. So Paul tells the people to rejoice, okay? Intentionally celebrate. I can't help but think he's at least got Eucharist in mind here that this is a feast every week of celebration where we come together. Don't neglect that. And then he says, guard your thinking. 
We're called to focus our attention on that which is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Christians are to think on these things. But lest we think that it's just a command, hey, stop your bad thinking, think, think in this way. Paul says it this way, keep on doing the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, think on these things is not a one-time decision. It's an act. It's a participation over and over again. It's rhythms and disciplines over and over again. It's a daily practice of trust. Rejoice. Celebrate in these things. And then in our gospel reading, Jesus tells a parable that on the surface, if we're honest, it's real scary. (laughs) I don't know if you guys heard me read this down here, but uh, there's some stuff in there that we kind of go, okay, whoa. The story's about a king who gives a wedding banquet for his son. Now, kings in Jewish parables almost always represent God. Guests at a banquet often apply to those facing judgment. So that's usually in the ancient world, that's how it works. The son is the Messiah, and that would have been pretty clear in the first century. So Jesus is at the center of all of these stories. And so all the parables that he tells are raising questions about who he is, his identity, and his authority. So the king has already sent out invitations. Likely it was, he gave lots and lots of notice and said, hey, come to this party. All of the RSVPs had been sent back. Of course, it's the king's party for his son. We're all going to be there. The wedding banquet, we're going to be there. But now the call goes out that it's happening. The food is ready. The time is now. But when the king sends his servants to tell all the guests the time is now, they don't show up. They make light of it. They have business stuff they need to do. They have other stuff that they need to get onto. In this culture, a rejection of the king's invitation like this would be an ultimate act of disrespect. In fact, it would be seen as treason to go against the king's order. Not only did they make light of the banquet, they beat up the servants, some of them do, and kill the king's messengers. So this goes beyond treason to an act of terrorism, an act of war. The king is extremely angry. In this culture, it would be expected that the king would then take out his frustration and respond with violence to these people. So the king in this story sends the troops to burn the city of those who murdered his servants. That's the first scary part in this. In the story, the chief priests and the leaders of the time and their followers are like guests to the wedding. They've been awaiting the Messiah's arrival. But they, like the wilderness wanderers, have become distracted. The Messiah has arrived. The feast of the sun is present, the wedding feast of the sun. But they don't want to hear about it. Jesus says that they, and by implication we, have become so focused on their need for control on who's part of the in-group and who's out, that they've missed the kingdom entirely. Now, the warning is addressed to Israel's leaders, but Jesus is using the parable to warn the people in his community and his disciples, don't be like them, don't respond in that way. Now, when we hear the harsh words of Jesus, it's important to remember, Jesus' harshest words are always reserved for those inside the family for those closest to the kingdom of God as it's unfolding in front of them. So this is a warning for us today. It's a warning for those who are part of the family of God or who are seeking Jesus. In the parable, when the wedding guests reject the son and kill his messengers, 
we then see that there's good news. The king sends out new messengers. These messengers go to the wrong side of the tracks. It says the bad as well as the good. The food is ready and others are invited to join. The doors to the wedding banquet have been flung wide open and everyone is invited. Now in Matthew's gospel, it's pretty clear that Jesus is referring to the tax collectors, prostitutes, the riffraff, the nobodies, those who have been sick in their bodies and they've been cast out from the community because of it. The Messiah's feast is for them. Why? Just because he says so. Just because of grace. As each guest is welcomed in, they change. Their identity changes. Their behavior changes. As they enter into this status as guests of the banquet, they are transformed. I love this. There's a commentator named Frederick Dale Bruner, and he writes this. The flawed, as this gospel has taught repeatedly, are especially dear to Jesus' heart. For the most part, for the most part, the gospel came into a world where even the highest contemporary religions were discriminating, and the gospel won the flawed. The gospel won the flawed. In this world, when you attended a banquet like this, you got a robe when you arrived. That's kind of a cool practice, right? And it marked you as one of the invited guests. Remember, the banquet's open to everybody. Everybody who accepted the invitation, all who want to celebrate the arrival of the sun. But at the end of the story, there's somebody who shows up and they're not wearing their robe. This person has intentionally not put it on, okay? So read in this, this is not an accident. This is not somebody who just happened to, they weren't wearing nice clothes or nothing like that. No, they intentionally have chosen not to wear the robe. They've rejected their status as a wedding guest. The result is the one who's not wearing the wedding robe was thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the second scary part, okay? Scary stuff in this, right? Remember, this is a parable. It's an illustration. Jesus is saying the feast of the kingdom requires new clothes. We put on the kingdom of God. Transformation matters. That's why Jesus ends by saying many are called, but few are chosen. We tell you every week that the table of the Lord is open to everybody. It's open to all. And there is also a sense, hang with me here, where the table is closed. Here's what I mean by that. The table is closed to those who actively keep others away from the table. If we are looking for the family of God to be founded on something other than grace on our own earning, on our own striving, on metrics that we have created, we're not at the right feast. We're not dressed appropriately. This whole thing's about grace, and it's open to everyone. The guy who has not worn the robe is looking for the party to be something it's not. He's looking for his invitation to be based on something other than the king's welcome. The first group didn't believe they needed the food Jesus brings that first group that rejected the invitation. So they don't have space for rejoicing because they have nothing they can rejoice in. Certainly nothing the king or his son would offer them. They don't have time for it. They can take care of themselves. They don't need the king and they don't care about the son. Jesus' parable is certainly a critique of those who are too comfortable, too entitled, those of us who believe we are ultimately in charge of our lives and we can meet our own needs. 
I earn money, I go to the grocery store, pick out what I need, I put a roof over my head, I make things happen. Yet, it's not just a critique of the elites and the comfortable. Those who come to the banquet are expected to be prepared for what they're stepping into. In the Beatitudes, Jesus has declared what the kingdom looks like, that this banquet will look like that, right? The poor are better positioned to receive the kingdom because riches often blind a person to their own dependence on God. But all who are welcomed are expected to reflect the kingdom, to be humble, mourning, meek, hungry, thirsty for justice, merciful, pure in heart, makers of peace, rejecting hate, rejecting unfaithfulness and revenge. Why? Not because Jesus has created these arbitrary rules for people to follow, but because that's God's heart, and that's the way of being truly human. So this is a warning for all who are God's people. This doesn't mean we're perfect, okay? That's not what this is saying. But we are trusting and we are leaning into God's healing for us. There's some debate throughout church history as what the wedding garment represents. In the early church, it was holiness. If you lived, the early church fathers would talk about that it was living a right life, that that's what the robe that you needed. Since Augustine, St. Augustine, it was love, that love is what we bring to the, uh, to the banquet or, or what we wear to the banquet. And then in the Protestant Reformation, it became faith, that it was faith or trust in God that, that, uh, that is the wedding robe. I don't know that we need to argue about it because true faith in Christ leads us towards love. And the way of love is the way of holiness. At the same time, love points us to the one who is true love and who is virtuous even when we fail. So notice, it's not their virtue which invites them to the banquet. That's not a qualification for them being there. All are invited just as they are. And there are postures of openness that are required as one attends the banquet because that's what fits the occasion. Because this is what the kingdom is about. This is the nature of celebration. Are we showing up at a banquet for which everybody's invited, expecting something else? Are we expecting that we get to be part of the banquet because we did something special? <laughs> because we're so great? Because if we keep going down that road, we're going to start going, well, they're not so great. Or they're not, or we're going to start feeling shame about ourselves. We're going to start going, oh, I missed it this week. So I, maybe I'm not really invited here. I'm not really part of the family. No, no. God has given us this thing to wear. God's invited us fully just as we are to be part of the kingdom. I hope today you hear this primary reality, this thing. You are loved by God and you are invited to his table. In times where you feel God's distance, you can be assured. You can rejoice. God is near to you. He's not a product of your own creativity or your own good work. He is with you by grace. And this is the source of our celebration. There are times where we'll forget that. As C.S. Lewis famously says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. But hear Paul's words. 
rejoice in the Lord, even and especially in times when you do not feel him. As you long to see the promised land, you can rejoice. Your hope is sure. And this is why we worship. This is why we feast. We are a celebrating people, a people who week after week reorient our lives around God's faithfulness, around God's love. The food is ready and all are welcome, the good and the bad. Those on the underside of power, those who never considered themselves worthy of such an invitation are now invited to feast in honor of the king's son. The robes have been provided for us and we must be prepared to be oriented towards the kingdom. This means we let go of our pride, get in touch with our brokenness, our need for healing. It means we don't get to define the kingdom because our attempts at kingdom building always fail. We just celebrate the kingdom. May we receive all that God has for us. May we be reminded of his goodness, which has been revealed in Jesus. In the in-between seasons of our lives, when we go through difficulty, and all that wilderness brings with it, may we be anchored by God's faithfulness. He has heard our cry, entered our pain, died for us, and conquered death. For this we rejoice. Amen.